Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Richard Giuliani, author of Little Italy in the Great War. Richard Giuliani, author of Little Italy in the Great War, Philadelphia's Italians on the Battlefield and the Home Front. Why'd you write the book? Good question. Uh, I've often asked that myself, of myself, um, and I think you'll be surprised at the answer because you're, you are part of it. Um, I, 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 as I reflect on how this came about, I realized that uh, it wasn't my choice. It chose me. The subject chose me rather than I chose it. Um, but um, I think there were three things uh, that I can identify that were to some extent involved. One was the fact of growing up in a, an immigrant family during the Second World War and hearing my father talk about the war and talk about his experiences in the war. But he was talking about the experiences of a veteran of the Italian infantry in the First World War, which he was. He was very fortunate. Uh, he, was, uh, he reached Mestre, which was the jumping off point for the front line, on November 4th, which was the day the armistice was signed in, on the Italian front. It's a week earlier than the Western Front. But I used to hear a great deal about his adventures as a, as a, a soldier, uh, even though he was uh, fortunate enough not to get to the ugly uh, battle line which devastated so many lives. Um, and uh, I, I grew up very much aware of the Great War. A uh, second thing that happened much later on that uh, further nourished my interest in this subject was uh, when I was doing my doctoral dissertation at the University of Pennsylvania, when I was doing research, I was in South Philadelphia in public parks, um, uh, which were gathering places for uh, elderly immigrant men. And I was tape recording what they could, were willing to tell me about their lives. And uh, I uncovered a number of them, a handful of them, but uh, quite a few, um, who said that one of the reasons they came to uh, America, when I asked them the question of why did you leave Italy and why did you come to America, um, some of them were willing to admit that it was partly the conscription laws of Italy and they had no interest in serving in the military. And these are men who had come before the war in the late 19th century, early 20th century. This was in the late 1960s, early 1970s I was doing the interviews. Uh, and they said, uh, I didn't want to go into the Italian army. I had no use for military life. And then they would hit me with the punchline. The punchline was, and you know what happened to me after I got here? I ended up a doughboy on the Western Front in the U.S. Army. Uh, and uh, I began to learn as I furthered my own reading and, and uh, along these lines that um, they had served quite notably, quite honorably. Uh, in, in, uh, they were cannon fodder. They were much like um, current minorities, such as our, our Puerto Ricans, who show up sometimes in strangely large numbers in the military life. But this was an opportunity for young Italian immigrant boys who uh, first went into the uh, Pennsylvania National Guard 
And then when it was federalized, when we entered the war in 1917, uh, and you get the Italian Brigade, part of the Pennsylvania National Guard initially, and then later part of the Federal Army, the na nationalized Federal Army, Federalized National Army. Uh, and the third thing that kind of tickled me was the last interview that we did, because toward the end of the interview, or maybe right after the interview, as we continued our conversation, you said to me at one point, uh, as we talked about the Great War, you said, oh yes, Italy was on our side during that conflict, wasn't it? And your hesitation kind of needled me a little bit, and I thought, gee, I wonder if there are many Americans who don't realize that Italy was allied with the United States and France and Great Britain and Russia uh, in the, uh, the Great War. Uh, so all of these things kind of rotated in my mind a bit, revolved around in my mind, and they, they truly did. I mean, even that little episode uh, in, involving you, and, and uh, I have mentioned it at times to other people, and uh, here was an interviewer who was a very well-informed, sophisticated guy, who uh, kind of surprised me when he paused for a moment in asking this question. Um, so uh, I thought there was a, a, a huge gap that had to be filled, uh, and I began to find uh, more and more material. I think I went into it first by trying to um, look at that period of immigrant history in which uh, an immigrant population, and they were not the only immigrant population to be uh, in this situation, of course, uh, found themselves uh, facing uh, an international, the first really great international involvement of the United States. For them, fortunately, uh, their, uh, their participation was in alliance with the, uh, with the United States, their new nation. But for many others in Philadelphia, of course, we had a large German population, uh, which I've been researching in recent years. We had a large Austrian population. Um, we had a large Polish population, and they were going to go. Uh, they were going to find themselves in a more complicated and more difficult situation. But um, being primarily preoccupied with the Italians, I thought uh, it would be enough for me to deal with the Italians. As I got into that, um, the ramifications suddenly sprouted, and I began to find a number of other aspects that I wanted to deal with. For example what was the reaction of the civilian population in the immigrant community when war is declared and uh, uh, the Great War begins in August of 1914. Italy does not enter until May of 1915. When, uh, uh, when Italy enters, when Italy declares its involvement in the war and launches an assault against the Austro-Hungarian Empire on the northeastern border of their country, Little Italy explodes in patriotic fervor. Uh, well, just for the record, you said Italy entered the war in 1915? 1915. When yes. did the U.S. enter the war? 1917. So there was two years that Italy was yes. in the war in the that the U.S. was yes. not in the war. Okay. Um, and, and for the U U.S., it's a very difficult time because um, we know we're, the war is inevitable for us. And uh, we almost know that it is inevitable that we will go in on the Allied side, but uh, President Wilson has declared a policy of neutrality, and on the surface, we're supposed to be uh, non-committal uh, as far as which side we will be on. But it, 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 I think most people understood that once we get into the war, it's going to be with uh, the British, our closest foreign uh, relations, uh, and uh, we will uh, be with the uh, Allies. 
What happens, however, in 1917, as we discover, is we do not have a very large standing army and we are not prepared. It isn't until spring of 1918, almost summer of 1918, that a large military commitment is made by the United States. And there's only a few weeks left to the war. The big buildup, the big, the, the big move made by the U.S. Army, ground army, is in June of 1918. Um, we suffer, by comparison, we suffer about 125,000 deaths, which over the short period that we were in the war from, uh, from that initial engagement in June of 1918 till the armistice in early November of 1918, it's actually a very large rate of casualty. But in terms of total numbers, it doesn't compare at all with Italy, who loses 650,000 men. Uh, although uh, most of the men dying during the war in all armies were not dying from uh, battlefield wounds and uh, battlefield circumstances, but from the influenza and from other circumstances. Um, England and France have enormous losses in the millions, several million each, and Russia's losses are so large that they are sometimes given as incalculable. Why was Italy in the war in the first place? What did they have against Austria? Uh, well, uh, again, uh, a difficult question to answer and a question that was not entirely answered when Italy went into the war because there was great division within the Italian population. There was strong, uh, a strong anti-war sentiment. Uh, but Italy eventually does make the, the, the war faction does prevail and Italy does make the move. Italy has, uh, for, for one, one answer to that question, Italy covets a certain piece of territory in the northeast corner that is going to complete what we know as geographical, modern geographical Italy. And Italy had long uh, uh, coveted that piece of turf. Italia irredenta, unclaimed Italy, unredeemed Italy. Uh, but Italy has also had uh, centuries of difficulty in its relationship to uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now, Italy, of course, does not become a modern nation, a solidified, consolidated modern nation until the early 1860s. Uh, it expands with uh, additional acquisitions of land in the early 1870s, but there's a small parcel of land that it is thought, uh, and part of it goes back to even Dante writing about Italy, fair Italy, beautiful Italy, extending from sea to sea. Uh, and across uh, the Alps. Uh, and that northeast corner uh, where the Dolomites are is something that Italy covets uh, very, very much. However, there's much more to it. Uh, Italy in 1885 was part of the Berlin Pact that made a defensive pact that made it an ally of uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary. Uh, and the agreement was that if either of those two nations were attacked, the three nations would go to war as allies. Uh, in 1914, 1914-1915, Italy is going to claim that Germany and Austro-Hungary are the aggressors and they are not bound by the attack, uh, in the, in, by the agreement. In the meantime, Great Britain is soliciting Italy and there is the Pact of London that is uh, reached in 1915 uh, and it draws Italy into the war. Now, other people of a more uh, skeptical, more cynical nature would uh, say that Italy also was waiting to see who was likely to win the war. 
and was not going to, was not willing to enter the war if it would be entering on a losing side. Uh, Italy's participation in the war was perhaps decisive, although we could argue from now till kingdom come over what was the decisive element and uh, Perhaps with a, uh, an event as complicated as the Great War was, there were 30 decisive mm -hmm. uh, elements, components. But Italy always uh, contended that because of the attention that it, re that it required of, the, from, uh, of Austro-Hungary, uh, troops uh, on that border, that northeastern border, it protected France's border uh, and saved France uh, as early as 1914 from uh, being overwhelmed uh, by the enemy forces. Uh, now, your book, as the title is Little Italy and the Great War, Philadelphia's yeah. Italians on the Battlefield, if you were to walk around Little Italy in 1914, 1915 yes. in Philadelphia, where would you have been, where in the city, and, and what would you have seen? Well, uh, Little Italy, of course, uh, is a... Is a, a, a more of a metaphorical phrase than, than a precise geographical phrase. I think the, the, the principal claimant to Little Italy would, of course, be the large concentration of Italian-Americans in South Philadelphia, uh, below South Street, uh, going all the way down to uh, where the airport is today, uh, pretty much from uh, river to river, uh, although um, in the early 20th century, Italians who uh, were living in what we see as Little Italy today were very wary of the non-Italians on the other side of Broad Street. And I remember when I interviewed my, my men for my doctoral dissertation years ago, they said that it was dangerous to cross Broad Street because the Irish were there and the Irish would mug you. The Italians and the Irish have always had a love-hate relationship. Um, but the, the principal Little Italy is in what we, what we see as South Philadelphia today, the old section of South Philadelphia. It's, a, it's probably the largest, um, the largest claimant to a Little Italy title of any, any uh, city in the United States. I mean, there are other cities, for instance, New York has a huge population that lives in its little Italy, and other cities, uh, many other cities can claim to have a little Italy with substantial populations, but the, the so-called little Italy of Philadelphia in South Philadelphia is a vast geographical uh, track. Now, how, many, how many people in there? Um, I was afraid you were going to ask me that question because that is, a, a, again, a very elusive question. Um, uh, I, I think what you're re really also asking me is how many Italians were there, maybe. Um, in the early 20th century, as we approached the war, there are all kinds of numbers being bandied about. The Italian uh, newspapers, the foreign language newspapers in South Philadelphia, are saying anywhere from 120,000 to 200,000. And if you go into the suburbs, uh, an even greater number, of course, the Italian consulate is grabbing onto that number and, and kind of officially uh, validating it as the accurate number. But it's hard to answer because we're talking about uh, people born in Italy, people uh, born in the United States, children to uh, Italian-born parents, and we're talking about people of later generations that can trace their presence in Philadelphia uh, as far back as the 1850s, 1860s, when they first began to come in in modest numbers exploding in the 1880s. Um, so it's an elusive number uh, and uh, still to this day. When I first started doing my research, I remember 
uh, in the mid-1960s, when I first became attracted to the question of Italians as immigrants to Philadelphia, uh, the most recent census, the 1960 census, identified Italians uh, in terms of Italian-born and Italian stock, um, those who were born in Italy and those who were born in the United States of at least one Italian-born parent. The Italians were the largest uh, ethnic population in Philadelphia, the largest white ethnic population in Philadelphia, I should say. Did they tend um, to stick together or uh, in their enclave, or did they yes, spread out yes. the city? Yes, uh, yes. And uh, I should also add, before I finish uh, your question about Little Italy, there were other Little Italies. There are satellite communities uh, in other areas. In the Philadelphia West area? Philadelphia had Little Italy West. North Philadelphia had Little Italy North. Um, there are suburban communities in places like Stratford, where there were little clusters. Uh, that were originally settled out there because they were uh, gardeners and going into landscape uh, work, uh, railroad workers who uh, found it easier to live out there than to live in the city. But there were a number uh, of satellite communities, maybe 10, 12, 15 uh, recognizable satellite communities, often uh, clustered around a national parish, a national church that was Roman Catholic, but uh, allowed uh, uh, sermons in, in Italian and uh, living in a, a kind of tense relationship with uh, the, the central organized uh, Catholic Church because um, there was uh, what the uh, hierarchy referred to as the Italian problem. Italians, when they arrived, uh, seemed to, uh, in unacceptably large numbers, defect from Catholic membership. And if they did not defect, they were not as generous with their almsgiving as other ethnic groups were. Uh, so uh, the uh, bishops and archbishops in the United States, as well as the central authority in Rome, uh, had to deal with this so-called Italian problem. And they were searching for solutions. Part of it was to give Italians their own, their own churches. Uh, the, the church that I wrote about in my second book, Priest, Parish, and People, is the first Italian church in the United States for the exclusive use of Italians that was formed in 1852, 1853, 1854, and historically very, very important. It was recently closed as a parish a few, about 10 years ago. Um, but um, the, the, the parishes were very important as a device that served to cluster the Italians. When you get up to uh, some areas, though, there were strange, uh, very strange uh, expressions of all of this. Um, in uh, what is now the Diocese of Allentown, uh, there was at least one church, I know, that uh, faced, uh, I, I think it was actually on Garibaldi Place, which doesn't make any sense because Garibaldi was very anti-clerical, <laughs> uh, but it reflects the, 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 the kinds of contradictions that all people face in their daily lives uh, trying to sort out things. Why would all those Italians have left Italy to come to Philadelphia? Well, uh, Philadelphia was a place of great opportunity. Uh, Italy was not a place of great opportunity. It was a very difficult kind of choice. This was one of the things that uh, at the very beginning of my research I was intrigued by. Uh, why would you want to leave Italy? And those of us that have visited Italy and looked at the beauty of Italy, the physical beauty of Italy, have often asked that question, why do people, would people want to uh, leave this area? Uh, and the second question uh, becomes, how the heck did they ever get out of here, too, because uh, transportation was not what it is today. 
but uh, life was very difficult for uh, ordinary Italians, especially through the southern regions. Uh, and um, uh, I remember seeing an interview uh, that was published in a South Jersey newspaper some years ago where an immigrant informant to a reporter said it in a beautifully succinct sort of way, the way that uh, scholars strive to, to get a nice, neat, pat phrase. And he said it so, so simply and so incisively. He said, I left Italy, I left my family because it was the only way I could help my family. Um, what I like to emphasize is that they did not come, however, so much for any so-called American dream, but it was for an Italian dream. Because when I interviewed my men back in the late 60s, early 70s, and I asked them, did you intend to stay here when you came? And they, for the most part, said they weren't sure. Uh, plans were uncertain. But in the back of most minds, I think, they had hoped to go back to Italy because they were sending as much money as they could in remittances through uh, immigrant banks and through the postal services back to Italy to uh, raise the quality of life for the family they had left behind. Uh, my own father, uh, when he came in 1922, came with the sense that he was going to earn enough money to provide dowry for the sisters, the several sisters that he had left behind. Unfortunately, he got trapped in America, and I think, of course, what happens is you do discover a good life, materially speaking, in the United States. Were, were jobs available to them when they yes, got here? Yes, yes. Uh, the jobs were difficult. Uh, the jobs were uh, dangerous. Uh, the jobs were very demanding. The jobs were thankless in many instances. Uh, this is not a country that welcomes them with uh, open arms at the highest levels. Um, one of the things that I've come across in more recent research, which strikes at my heart, uh, are newspaper accounts of railroad accidents. The Italians who worked on the railroads were not so much building the lines, the lines had already been built by Asian and Irish laborers in, in earlier years, uh, but they were track maintenance workers. The, the wooden ties had to be regularly replaced, so they would knock out the old uh, disintegrated ties and replace them. It was very, very dangerous work. Um, they had to have guards posted uh, in distant locations who would warn them of approaching trains, which didn't always work out. They were dealing with dynamite, which they did not know how to use, and uh, there's some incredible tales of men lighting dynamite, men trying to warm wet dynamite so they could use it to, uh, to uh, uh, explode sites, uh, deliberately explode sites, uh, who died in this very dangerous work. And when you see the newspaper accounts, what you read is 12 Italian laborers died on the Reading tracks yesterday. And then you read their identities. Track worker 12, track worker 13, track worker 14. In the foreman's book, there is no name listed, only a number given as an identification of the worker. So there's this enormous sadness that I feel. And uh, in my study at home, I can look from my windows out at the main line railroad tracks. And I often wonder if men died close to my house. And they were among these men who died nameless. Uh, but it kind of captures in a kernel, in a nutshell, uh, the, the difficult, dirty, 
and dangerous work that many immigrants, and again, not just Italians, but Poles and the Irish had gone through it earlier. Uh, a lot of immigrant groups were uh, experiencing the same challenging life. Did Italians encounter much anti-Italian sentiment? Did the, uh, Italians, was there much anti-Italian sentiment? That yes, yes, there was Italian sentiment, anti-Italian sentiment. Um, uh, there was a great deal of confusion about Italians racially. Uh, the Italians are the only group in the official immigration records of the United States to be separated by region. Uh, in the famous Dillingham Commission report, uh, which uh, conveys the uh, annual immigration reports uh, of the uh, uh, federal government, when uh, Italian numbers are given, they are always divided into Northern Italian and Southern Italian. And the Southern Italian introduced a racial element as well, too, because there are uh, congressional investigations where some of our honorable representatives from our southern states are asking if these men are members of the white race. Uh, because the Italians uh, also found themselves in southern locations in great proximity to black Americans with whom they went to school, with whom they shared housing, with whom they shared uh, the territory, the, the immediate geographical locations. Uh, and uh, I tend to think that the, uh, the uh, kind of racist sentiment that Italian Americans of later generations get uh, labeled with sometimes uh, were um, uh, 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 something that resulted from becoming Americanized that in their earlier years, they didn't know when they first arrived they were supposed to dislike blacks because they were living peaceably with, with blacks. Uh, and alongside of black Americans, and uh, I hope most people know the tragic history of violence against black Americans, Italians were also subject to uh, terrible ep episodes, several terrible episodes of uh, anti-Italian violence, the most important being uh, the 1893 lynching in uh, New Orleans in which 11 Italians are exonerated from charges that they killed uh, the chief of police who on his, uh, supposedly, as he dies, he says the Dagos did it. Uh, and they arrest a bunch of Italians. They are brought to hearings in New Orleans. They are exonerated and they are to be released from the jail when a mob of white citizens removes them from the jail, hangs them, and shoots them, shoots them ma mainly outside of the jail in a terrible act of violence that caused an international episode between Italy uh, and, and the United States. The, um, the uh, principal diplomat, the uh, ambassador to the United States from Italy, went to see the Secretary of State, I think it was Secretary of State James G. Blaine, and walked out in anger from his office as they tried to negotiate some scheme of reparations for the Italian families that had been victimized by this kind of thing. And Italy was threatening to send warships, Italy at that time having a more formidable navy than the United States had, warships to threaten American ports. We were on the verge of war with Italy as a result of that episode. And incidentally, one other thing I'd like to point out about that episode, I have followed it carefully through uh, archival copies of the Philadelphia Inquirer and the day after the lynching, the word mafia occurs in the Inquirer for the very first time in print in the Inquirer. Uh, I can't find it at any earlier date.
in, on the pages of the Enquirer. It had been circulating in other places, particularly in New Orleans, uh, which is uh, very much an Italian city, more than a French city, but a very large Italian migration there, and uh, largely a, of Sicilian origin, too. Did, that. Did, where in Italy did the Italians uh, in Philadelphia primarily come okay. from? Okay. The earliest Italians who founded the community, and that was the subject of my first book that we met years ago to talk about uh, building mm -hmm. Little Italy. They were Ligurian. They were from uh, the uh, region that contains the city of Genoa. So they came from far up on the, the, uh, on the peninsula, on the, the uh, western side, way up on in the northwestern corner. Was the early Italy. 1800s? Um, they began coming. I begin to see men who are connected with one another in migrant chains as early as about 1812, 1815 where you get men who are coming from Ligurian villages. They're actually coming from hill towns that are in uh, an area called the Val Fontana Buona, the, the, the valley of the, the good fountain. Uh, and uh, it was a slate mining area. And they mined open pit mining of slate brought down to the city of Chiavari, wonderful city on that coast, uh, and shipped everywhere. But the Genovese also had a tradition of uh, sending people all over the world as merchants, as beggars, as street musicians, as all kinds of things. And by the 18, I think the 1850 census, you begin to see a little cluster of them just outside the southern limits of Philadelphia. Well, in 1854, when Philadelphia is consolidated, modern Philadelphia is consolidated with new boundaries, and uh, the districts of South Mark and Passyank and Moyamensing are drawn into the new city, consolidated city of Philadelphia, and we can begin to think about an area that we're going to call South Philadelphia eventually. It is largely a Ligurian community, that first church. If you look at the names of the um, uh, the original families that appear on baptismal records, for example, they are coming from these towns outside of Genoa. Uh, and, and then when mass migration When started? mass migration uh, starts, um, uh, the, it shifts tremendously to the south. Uh, and uh, again, this is the kind of thing that when I'm with friends from South Philadelphia especially, uh, we might argue over. It depends upon what your own personal background is to some extent. I would contend from a scholarly point of view, but it's also from a personal point of view, that the, great, uh, the greatest representation was from uh, the Abruzzi, which was uh, at that time the Abruzzo and Molise. My, my family, my father's family originates in Molise. Uh, and um, uh, they split in 1950s into two different regions, but back then they are referred to as the Abruzzi, and they are the Abruzzo and Molise, uh, two, two regions, uh, uh, a single region at, at that point, and they come in huge numbers. But great numbers are also coming from Sicily, unquestionably, uh, from uh, Basilicata, from Apulia, uh, and if you go through uh, the population and ask people about their backgrounds from Campania, uh, you'll find almost all of uh, so southern Italy represented. Were there good Italian restaurants from the very beginning, or is that something that evolved <laughs> when they got here? Interesting question. Uh, I have um, unpublished pages of another manuscript that describes um, a Civil War chef that had achieved a great reputation, who opened a very fancy restaurant 
by the 1870s, 1880s, uh, you, you begin to get the things that, that reflect and challenge Delmonico's in New York. These are not corner uh, spaghetti joints. Uh, and uh, you begin to get by, uh, at one point in this book, I talk about the celebrations that are going on as the war comes to an end. And uh, a good bit of the geographical focus, the, the spatial focus, is on restaurants. Uh, several of them named for prominent Italian political or military figures. Uh, how good they were, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, again, this is something we argue, friends argue over. Uh, when you've been raised in an Italian family and have had the benefit of an exquisite cook who is your mother or your grandmother who is an exquisite cook, uh, it's hard to find satisfaction in many restaurants. Uh, and we can be pretty snobbish about that and say, oh, my mother cooked much better than any restaurant I've ever found. But, uh, but there were popular restaurants. And the restaurants, I think, were very important in terms of integrating the Italians as a population into Philadelphia because the restaurants were a magnet drawing so other Italians Italian into, uh, and I have a wonderful quotation that hasn't appeared in anything I've written yet from Christopher Morley, who was a great famous writer, Philadelphia writer, of course, uh, who praises South Philadelphia and basically says, why would anybody want to live anywhere else? I mean, it's, 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 it's extravagant praise that he gives to South Philadelphia. And it makes you uh, wonder, now my family slipped out of South Philadelphia at a very early point. Uh, both my, my father had lived with relatives in North Philadelphia when we first arrived. My mother had lived for about a year. Uh, with her parents in a, a house on Reed Street in South Philadelphia when they first arrived. Uh, but they pretty quickly found their way over to Camden. And we always felt, as we were growing up, that we had improved the quality of our lives. And uh, we looked with some, some measure of disdain, I must confess, <laughs> on those we had left behind in South Philadelphia. But now, as I go through it in a vicarious sort of way, and I, I read about South Philadelphia in 1910 or 1920 or 1930, I get a great sense this must have been a fabulous place to live. It must have been a place of great joy. You said early on in the program that when uh, Italy entered World War I, there was a burst of patriotic yes. fervor yes. among the Italians in Philadelphia. Yes. How did it show itself? What did they do? Uh, they took to the streets. They marched in the streets. Bands, um, any Italian community has a dozen bands, marching bands, colorful marching bands. Uh, and the bands marched in the streets and, and, and people poured out of the houses with American flags and Italian flags. Uh, even though the United States was not yet in the war. They knew they were part of the United States, but they, they came out mainly with Italian flags, and they marched behind the bands, and they marched all over the city. They marched from South Philadelphia into Center City. They stopped traffic. They, they uh, froze uh, industrial establishments. They workforces walked out uh, to celebrate what was the news they were receiving from Italy, which was very important. And you say that quite a number of them volunteered for the Italian army. Well, this is an interesting question. And uh, this is, I think, the, one of the core questions of what I'm trying to deal with in this book. When the war breaks out, the Italian government, the consulate office in Philadelphia, announces that uh, men who uh, were born in Italy, who have not become American citizens, have a military obligation to serve in Italy. They are uh, reservists in the Italian army. 
And if they ignore that obligation, uh, the implication is they will be seen as deserters, subject to punishment. Okay. Uh, the early figures that I see that were being, again, that were being circulated at the time in 1915, uh, approximately maybe 20,000 men, young men, who are in the Philadelphia Consular District, which goes down to Northern Virginia, incidentally, but it includes Delaware and New Jersey and uh, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, and they are being told they are obligated to report to the, consul the consulate office to identify themselves and to be preparing themselves to be shipped back to Italy. Now, there's a problem here for the Italian government because it doesn't have the ships. It quickly exhausts the shipping that it needs to send them back to Italy. Well, yeah, you write in here that uh, the Italian government expected volunteers not only to enlist promptly but to pay their own way. Yes, yes. There was, they were not allocating money to, to pay for these men. Uh, the, the, the men were expected. That there was another issue that pops up in public discourse. Where's the money going to be coming from to, to, to finance these men going back? You get uh, interesting in the Italian language press, again, uh, advertisements for household goods being sold, uh, in part because we don't need them anymore if we're going back to Italy, but also um, I need to, to pay my way back to Italy. Were, were um, the, the Italian citizens living in the U.S. perfectly willing to go off in well, the Army? The, the interesting thing is not nearly as many reported. The, the newspapers give them great attention, and there are wonderful photographs, which I found and I tried to get into the book, too, of men jamming the front doorsteps of the consulate, uh, answering the call. And the newspapers uh, play it up tremendously because ships will leave from Philadelphia as a port on the way to New York to pick up other reservists. Uh, and claimed that two or three thousand men got on the, the ship uh, in Philadelphia, and there are wonderful scenes on the docks of Philadelphia, which I've given a lot of attention to, because they come with musical instruments to play their farewell. There are these terrible parting scenes, because many of the men are married and are leaving wives and children, and these terrible parting scenes on the docks, because, of course, the families don't know if they'll ever see the husband, father uh, ever again. But the number of men that actually went back was fairly small compared to the number that were supposed to go back. Uh, and they remained a bone of contention. Rene Tent, they, they were called, uh, they were the resistors, they were the draft resistors. And they remained resistors as reservists. Now many of the men do go back. And when I eventually get to the men who were drafted into the U.S. Army, who either volunteered or were drafted and ended up in the U.S. Army on the Western Front, and I go into details of what happened to them on the Western Front, and you get these little vignettes, which I've been able to call from Philadelphia newspapers, of men who were wounded on the Western Front or killed on the Western Front. You get these very poignant lines of information that um, uh, Alberto also has uh, two brothers who are serving in the Italian Army or have already died on the Italian Front as members of the Italian Army. You get a number of families, some of which have parents here and some of which have parents left behind in Italy. Do you have any uh, reports of what the experience was like for the, uh, the Italian-Americans who were in the Italian army when they got over? Uh, yes, but I, I think it doesn't go as far as you would like me to go with it because I do have accounts that are probably cleaned up a bit 
because a good bit of what was communicated back from the battlefields, all of it was under censorship. Uh, and the information that appears in newspapers, you have to take with a grain of salt. Uh, but these men are quoted about uh, what, uh, and we're even getting letters to their families, which were also censored. Uh, and the men describe battlefield conditions. Uh, they do not, descri they describe them in a way in which there's not, the information is not much different than any other soldier would give. It's good from a, on a certain level, in a certain fashion it's good, and there's lots of heroic stuff described, uh, and the usual hatred for the enemy, and uh, the, good, the good times and everything. There's one very long series that takes place of published articles that takes place uh, from um, Fort Meade, Maryland, where the bulk of Philadelphia men were sent to be uh, prepared for overseas uh, duty. Uh, and um, uh, a mainstream American named Bob, who was a correspondent supposedly sending letters back to his mother in Philadelphia, his mother and sisters in Philadelphia. When you reach the end of it, you scratch your head and you say, I wonder how uh, authentic any of this was. Bob talks about encountering Italian soldiers from Philadelphia, and he describes the, the growing appreciation that I have. I've never met an Italian guy before, and he's become my good camp buddy here, and all this kind of thing. Um, and there was a, a very well-known attempt by uh, military officials to create a very favorable image of the whole war experience, beginning with the camp and training experience, that this was great fun by boys. It was like uh, was, uh, uh, college kids on a summer camp kind of thing, and we're having a wonderful time. And we're going to have a wonderful time when we get over to the front, too, uh, which is quite the opposite of what actually occurs. So were Italian citizens who were living in Philadelphia, the mm -hmm. immigrants, were they subject to the American draft? Okay. If uh, they made any gesture towards becoming an American citizen, towards becoming an American citizen, they became eligible for the draft. If they re refrained from any of that, they were protected by an 1871 law that protected American citizens in Italy and Italian citizens in the United States. They were not subject to any kind of call to duty by the government of that country where they found themselves. The United States had to deal with this because there were too many uh, men who had not made any move towards citizenship. So, uh, again, uh, there's a little bit of nibbling here and there. How do we get these men to uh, 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 come closer to the citizenship process? The U.S. government establishes uh, citizenship courts at the bases, and you get these accounts of uh, 600 uh, foreign-born soldiers swear citizens, take the oath of citizenship at Fort Dix or at Fort Meade or at some other uh, Fort, Fort Gordon in Georgia, uh, another place where many of our local boys went. Um, uh, and uh, you, you realize that there was a very uh, energetic effort to get these boys moving towards American citizenship so that they, that, that could justify their conscription into the U.S. Army. Uh, and you mentioned there was an Italian brigade. It was in the Pennsylvania militia. Yes. Did they keep the Italians together, or, or did they mix them through, um, throughout the Army? Again, um, a hard question to answer without going into um, more detailed information, which is probably available in Washington, but I, I did not take advantage of that. I did not look at it. 
Um, the Italian brigade that is featured on the cover of the book reflects a group of men who uh, joined together in the Pennsylvania National Guard, as I mentioned before. When it's federalized, they go over and are held together, but uh, many of them were also distributed into other units as well. What you, what you have in the Italian case is most men going into the infantry. You occasionally find Italians in the Navy, but that's very rare, very, very rare. And they probably had to be rather Americanized Italians to be acceptable for service in the Navy. Uh, the Navy was very, very uh, reluctant. The Navy dragged its heels with uh, foreign recruits, with blacks. Uh, even in the Second World War, uh, black Navy personnel were cooks on ships and very limited service. Uh, so this, this is a very difficult problem for the American Armed Forces to work out in terms of how they're going to dispose of these men. The, the ordinary Italian was most likely to find himself in the infantry, and uh, in the infantry on the Western Front. Did many Italian Americans in the American Army, uh, were they assigned to Italy? Did any of them fight in Italy? Okay. Um, Many of them thought they were going to be assigned to Italy because it made all sense in the world to go to Italy. Um, the Italians anticipated the Italians anticipated that the United States would come to the aid of Italy with um, monetary loans to finance. <laughs> this is very interesting to finance the purchasing of arms and ammunition from American industries. It was going to go back to America. There was a circular path, which makes you very suspicious about what was going on there, but also with military aid to Italy. Uh, the United States disappoints Italy tremendously because it not only doesn't send much military aid to Italy, even though it trains the U.S. Um, Army Air Corps has a very important training center outside of Bari, uh, the city of Bari, uh, and the U.S. Uh, the beginnings of the U.S. Naval uh, air, or air Service is outside of Rome. Uh, they're trained in Italy. The Italians are assuming they're going to be bombing Austrians on the, on the Austrian front, the Austro-Italian front. They make a couple of uh, forays. LaGuardia, uh, Fiorella LaGuardia is among them, but he's quickly taken out of combat service. He was the commander of the uh, training base at Bari, uh, and he's sent on a speech tour to major Italian cities to address the Italians. And again, if you look at the remarks which are published in American newspapers of what he said in uh, Milan, for example, at the great opera house in Milan, at the La Scala, uh, he's almost promising American troops will be coming in large numbers. The United States actually sends one combat regiment, the 332nd Regiment, which was a Ohio National Guard unit that had been federalized. It's not an Italian-American unit. It's made up of all kinds of boys, uh, all kinds of backgrounds. They reach Italy toward the end of the war, and there's a very slow movement of the 332nd Regiment toward the front. Uh, they do some very interesting things, and men in their memoirs, men who were members of the unit in their memoirs, document this very, very clearly. They would march to an Italian village and then be brought back to base, change their uniforms, and be trucked to another village in a different type of uniform and made to appear as if it was a different unit. 
and then in the evening appear in a third location in yet a different kind of uniform. Um, German soldiers, Austrian soldiers rather, when they were um, captured after the end of the war, said that they believed that there were two million uh, Americans in action in Italy. They, there actually was no more than about two, three, two or three thousand. When they went into combat, they went into actual combat on the morning of November 4th, which I mentioned earlier in our conversation, the day the armistice is signed, they have um, no more than about 10 minutes of actual engagement with the enemy. And they are told in village after village, if you boys had reached here a half hour ago, uh, you would have had resistance from the Austrians. But they are in full flight now. They have disappeared. They're down the road 30 kilometers, uh, and there's no resistance. I think one American soldier was killed. There were a dozen or so who were uh, wounded. Uh, there were a couple others who were killed in training accidents. But, but um, there was, it was a farce, uh, and uh, it, 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 it was made to look like uh, America had delivered the goods, but the United States really hadn't. What was going on on the home front? If you walked around Little Italy and all these boys were off in Europe, what, what, what had changed? Well, there was Italy? a great deal of patriotic fervor. Uh, the, the, the display of the, the, the emblems that indicated our boy is over in service in, in Europe or our boy has died. Uh, these were emblems of great honor in the First World War as well as the Second World War. Uh, there were uh, frequent demonstrations uh, on periodic occasions. Again, the churches are very important because the priests are very patriotic, both for the Italian cause and the American cause. And on holidays that were once spiritual holidays, the feast day of a particular saint, they become converted into political events in which we are celebrating uh, the, 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 the glories of the U.S. armed forces uh, in France. Was there, were there Rosie the Riveter types in World War I, women who went into the... Okay, this is something that I tried to, 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 to get to, but the industrial records uh, are not as accessible as I would have hoped they would have been. Um, the one glimpse of an industrial presence of Italian workers, particularly women, in a chapter that I devoted to women and children, is when the, the great... Uh, explosion occurs at the Eddystone Ammunition Factory, Remington Factory in Eddystone in Delaware, just across the border in Delaware. When you look at the names of the casualties, you see a handful of Italian names and with Philadelphia dresses and you realize that Italian girls and women were commuting from Philadelphia into Delaware to work in the ammunition factories, which of course, uh, when these explosions occur, and there was, there was another in North Philadelphia in Frankfurt, uh, the immediate uh, sense is German saboteur spies in our midst are responsible for this. There was never any indication in the Philadelphia instances, either at uh, Edistone down there in Delaware or in the Frankfurt explosion, that uh, German agents had anything to do with this, enemy agents had anything to do with this. These were uh, uh, accidents that occurred due to faulty uh, shop practices. Were there fundraisers or relief efforts? Yes, or? yes, the Liberty Bond efforts. Uh, the great Liberty Bond drives, in which we have, what, five or so drives. Uh, Italian women participated from the third drive on in great numbers. There were specially designated Italian units, 
Uh, and I have a wonderful photograph I'm very proud of, of a group of women, I think it's in the third or fourth Liberty Bond Drive, uh, that appears in the book. Uh, and as I looked at the names of the women in there, I recognized one was my baptismal godmother and an old friend of the family. Uh, many years later, I, my, my path crossed with hers, uh, but, uh, but she was, as a young woman, one of these door-to-door uh, uh, -door solicitors who would uh, canvass the, the leaders of the Italian community, made extravagant promises when the, the, the bond drives began. The bond drives began with, as Italian bond drives because there were similar things going on in Italy before the United States enters the war. So they were raising money for, to, to send for over the, to Italy? They were raising money for the Italian Red Cross. They were raising money for a variety of different applications, hopefully. Uh, a lot of the money goes in uncertain directions that no one knows what happens to it. Uh, but when the United States enters the war, uh, they become part of the Liberty Bond drives that we associate with Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin now and Enrico Caruso singing over there. But they, they went through the communities too and they, they mobilized young Italian women. Uh, and the newspapers describe them. If you are on the corner of Broad and Christian Street and you see the pretty dark-eyed lass handing you a flower give her some money in return, uh, and you, you, you realize that she's from the Italian community and she's part of this solicitation of funds uh, to support uh, the American, uh, the financing of the war in the Liberty Bond drives uh, that were going on uh, till, even till after the war, the last Liberty Bond drive uh, occurs, I think, in 1919, because uh, we still have debt to pay. When the war ended and the soldiers in the Italian army were released from the army. Yeah. Did, did any of them stay in Italy or did they generally Many of them stayed home? in Italy. Uh, many of them came back. Uh, toward the end of the book, I get into this uh, a little bit, uh, but again, there's no easy way of, uh, of coming to numbers to be able to say that 50% came back and 50% stayed. You just can't do that. But I do get men uh, returning from uh, Italian army service and I do get men uh, who stayed. And, and, and you also get, uh, at that time, a reverse migration of people who may have had nothing to do with direct involvement in the war who want to return to Italy now that things have calmed down. They're anticipating prosperity in Italy and uh, they're fearful of the future of the American economy already that maybe the, the next few years won't be as good as we want it to be and maybe our better chance is to try to find work in, in Italy, which is an interesting reversal of the more long-enduring, more traditional uh, pattern that we were talking about earlier. Was there more acceptance of the Italians after the war, or like well, more assimilation, or did they go back to the way it was before? My, last, my very last, ep the, the epilogue of the book deals with this question, and I, um, I describe it in a kind of, again, a kind of cynical sort of way that the acceptance of Italians was not as great as they themselves may have thought it would be. Uh, the Americanization movement, which the war triggered of conscious, deliberate effort. Now, you can talk about the acculturation process in two ways. Acculturation is a natural experience uh, that occurs to uh, young boys and girls who go out to public schools, who go out to play on the sidewalks, and they're meeting Americans of all different kinds, and they're becoming Americanized by this natural evolutionary process. Or you can talk about acculturation as a matter of very conscious, deliberate policy, 
we're going to indoctrinate these people as Americans. And in that, you, you have, uh, again, the public schools are very much involved in that with Americanization classes, with citizenship classes, in evening schools, and in the regular curricula, too. Um, but the Americanization movement accelerates after the war, actually. It was introduced during the war in order to um, guarantee the allegiance of the foreign-born, because when the war breaks out, we don't know where the foreign-born are going to fall. Uh, and even those that are part of allied countries, we don't know how much enthusiasm they're going to have for the American cause. Uh, so we have to Americanize them. We have to get them to shift, to share the same commitments and the same enthusiasm as other Americans would have. But when the war ends, it accelerates. The, the, I have a document at home of a program that the Chamber of Commerce and a whole bunch of other noble institutions of Philadelphia all collaborated on, on Americanization in Philadelphia. I think it's dated 1923 or so. And they have a very elaborate program of trying to pick up the lives of these young people of, of foreign ancestry. And uh, the whole notion of the hyphenated American uh, was a provocative, controversial, explosive thing. I mean, the hyphenated American, you get prominent figures like the former president Theodore Roosevelt saying, there is no room for the hyphenated American. You quote an article from the Inquirer in 1915 yeah, saying yeah, that very yeah, thing. Yeah, uh -huh. absolutely, yeah. It's all over the place. The whole notion of a hybrid identity is anathema to many Americans. It is just totally unacceptable. Uh, it, it creates a difficult kind of circumstance because you have people certainly who want to become Americanized in some senses, but they do not want to cut themselves off entirely from their past because it involves a rejection of their own parents and grandparents. And, uh, and they're asking, well, what was wrong with what we have been? Uh, and can't we become something? It's a more pluralistic view of America. Can't we become something new and different, but at the same time hold what I cherish from the past? So I go into that in the uh, last chapter my epilogue chapter, because I, I feel that that has lingered on as a question and remains an issue today. It disturbs a great deal of Americans who look at the, the Latinos in our population and are very troubled by these people who don't want to give up Spanish. I mean, my, my feeling is, why can't we be a multilingual nation? Uh, what's so threatening? What's so, what's so uh, detrimental? What's so uh, uh, nonproductive? about people who have a facility in another language. I say, welcome it. It's wonderful. I envy them. Unfortunately, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Richard Giuliani. He is the author of this book, Little Italy in the Great War, Philadelphia's Italians on the Battlefield and Home Front. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian, for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.